0: I'll read verses one through 15 from God's word. I'll read out loud, and you can read along. It should be on the screen for you. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. You may be seated. So, um... If you've been around church or around kind of uh, evangelical culture, some of you haven't been, so this will be maybe somewhat new news for you. But if someone were to go and come up to you and go, how, how does one receive eternal life? Well, I think a lot of, a lot of people who've been in the church would, would know that answer because uh, they've heard that from Acts where the Philippian jailer asked Paul the same thing How do I receive eternal life? And the answer is repent and believe, repent, and believe. And that statement is true. That is God's call to us to respond to the gospel with repentance and belief. And isn't that nice? That is nice and simple and clean. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. And it's nice and simple because God is a gracious God. And he is telling us how we are to respond to the gospel. But telling one simply to say, repent and believe is kind of like selling somebody how they're to cook a bratwurst. Say, how do you cook a bratwurst? And you go, oh, that's simple. Six minutes at 350 degrees and you are good to go. Just like that. Just as easy and clean as repent and believe. But what God is doing for us and what Jesus is giving for us in this passage is giving us a behind the scenes look of how you receive eternal life. And that is about as distressing as seeing how the sausage is made. Because that is what is going on here. Did you understand anything that he said to Nicodemus? This is one what appears to be non sequitur after another. And let me tell you, he comes to Nicodemus and he says, and Nicodemus seems very complimentary to Jesus. And Jesus' response to Nicodemus's compliment is, You have to be born again, to which Nicodemus gives a very clear Amelia Bedelia-like response of, huh, I have to go back into my mother's womb? Taking things quite literally. What Jesus is giving to Nicodemus here and what he is giving to us is a behind behind the scenes, behind the curtain look of how spiritual birth happens. And when it comes to birth, seeing behind the curtain can be quite distressing. When I first told one of my children about um, how babies are created and conceived, I'm talking about that first very graphic birds and the bees conversation. We were sitting in the car together and I go into great uh, immense detail about a man and a woman getting together. And my my child was, I was sitting in the front seat, my child was sitting in the passenger seat up there in, in, in front. And in the midst of, of sharing in this detail to make sure this child underst- understands how this happens, uh, the child um, was given a peek behind the curtain of how new life is formed. And the response of this child was to be in such great distress that this child melted out of the chair down into the bottom well of the, ch- of the car and remained there for the rest of the conversation. <laughs> Sometimes seeing behind the curtain, of how life is formed is quite distressing. We had a young guy a couple years ago in our church, his wife was, was very pregnant and uh, he came home one day right near the due date. And uh, they were having a conversation and she was standing up talking and all of a sudden her water broke. And she looked up and she said, I guess it's time for us to go to the hospital. And the response of this young husband was to immediately do what? Pass out because sometimes seeing behind the other side of the curtain is quite distressing. I mean, just imagine, you think it's distressing for the uh, children just finding out about it or for the husband who sees his water break. Imagine being the child, right? He comes out, suddenly there's bright lights everywhere, people are screaming at him and he's asking, where did my apartment go and why is this guy slapping me on the bottom? And that's just the kid. Imagine how distressing it is for the mom. And that is what Jesus is doing here. He's giving us a sneak peek behind how new birth happens. We see it as nice and clean. Repent and believe. But it is far more complex than that. And it does distress us when we see behind the curtain. But once having seen behind the curtain and worked through your, your distress, what you will find is that your salvation is far more of the grace of God than you ever imagined, and like birth, experiencing and seeing the grace of God and how profound and immense it is, it will give you joy. So we're going to talk about the distress of new birth in the three three headings this morning. First, Jesus tells Nicodemus about the distressing need for new birth the distressing need for new birth. Nicodemus compliments Jesus says we hear you're a great teacher, well, you must come from the Lord, you must be a prophet like of of his and Jesus responds to that compliment by saying truly truly I say to you unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, really quickly, this phrase, kingdom of God, here's how I want you to think about it. At the end of our passage at verse 15, he's gonna say, this is how one experiences eternal life. For the purposes today, that's how I want you to think of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God equals eternal life that experiencing God's kingdom come and all of its perfection for all of eternity, that's, that's heaven, that's eternal life. And Jesus says, if you wanna enter heaven, if you wanna enter eternal life, if you wanna be a part of God's kingdom and even see it, then you must be born again. Now, what in the world does that phrase mean? Nicodemus is evidently quite bewildered And all you can say is, "Um, I don't think I can do that. I can't go back up into my mother's womb and have her be born again, have myself be born again. And so Jesus says, Well, let me do some explaining. He then clarifies just a little bit more, but probably leaves us fairly confused. In verse five, Jesus then says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So now he's given us a little bit more information, but what in the world now does that mean? We are being born again of water and spirit. Now, theologians have debated over the years what this exactly means. Some say, well, the water is you have to be born first naturally, and then the second by spirit is your, your spiritual rebirth. Some have said, well, it means you have to be, have experienced water baptism, but then you also have to experience a baptism of the heart internally. But that's actually, I don't believe what Nicodemus is, is thinking, what his mind would go, or what Jesus is thinking about. To be born again, Jesus is actually referring to a passage in Ezekiel chapter 36 that goes this way, verses 25 through 27, and says that this, the prophet Ezekiel is saying this to the people of Israel, I will sprinkle you. He's talking about when the, the Messiah is gonna come. He says, I will sprinkle you with clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So he's saying, all this grubby grub, stuff, he's gonna come and wash you clean. And then, not just that, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you, and I will put, I'll put it within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That means a softness. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So, do you see the two words? Water means the cleansing that God is going to provide and spirit, which is the new heart that God is gonna provide, the new DNA that he is gonna give you. That is what new birth is. New birth is not going back up into your mother's womb and being born again physically. It is a spiritual cleansing of your sins are washed away and you are given a new heart. But understand that whole, what we're saying there about a new heart is he is saying you get a whole new nature. And this is the profoundness and the disturbing and distressing nature of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He is saying to Nicodemus that I am not coming, Nicodemus, to give you to just wash you up a little bit, to make you presentable. I'm not coming to give you some moral nip and tucks here and there. No, I am coming to give you an entirely new nature. This is what C.S. Lewis says, that when Jesus enters into your life, that we want him to come in and rearrange the furniture a little bit to do some like home renovation that makes our bathroom and our kitchen look better of our lives. And Jesus comes in and says, no, we have to take this bad boy down to the studs because you are rotten. Here's the question. Who do we think needs this type of renovation? Who do we think needs this to be born again in this way? Now, the term born again, because of the Billy Graham revivals and other revivals of the 20th century, the word born again has come to be a, a term to uh, speak about those who really need to hear the gospel and who will walk an aisle, and, and they have an emotional experience, a high emotive experience, and we tend to think of the type of people who need to be born again are guys in jail and hillbillies, like the guy from Where, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, in which he goes down to the river and he comes out and he says, oh, I've been saved. And this is our image of the type of people who need to be born again. The people who go to AA and believe in a higher power and our addicts, those in prison, those who are inner city schools, and those who are part of generational poverty, and those who are not very intellectual, but those who just have a very emotional, not an intellectual kind of spirituality. This is how we think of those who need to be born again, who need this kind of heart change. Well, who did Nicodemus think needed to be born again? Well, I'll tell you what. Nicodemus, sir, as heckfire, did not think that he had to be born again, because Nicodemus, as a as a Pharisee, they were he was the one who was familiar with the language of the kingdom of God, and they understood. And what they preached as Pharisees was that if you were a good and faithful Israelite, you were in already. You were already part of the kingdom of God, and who is Nicodemus? This bad boy is a good and faithful Jewish kid. Nicodemus, he's a Jew by birth, by genetics he should be in. He is not just a Jew, he's a Pharisee, which means he does everything he can to keep the law perfectly. Not only that, he's a member of the court of the Sanhedrin, which means he's a man of tremendous wealth and power. And so who this man is, is a man who knows his Bible perfectly, who has read it backwards and forwards and probably memorized the entirety of the Old Testament. He is a man who lives uprightly. He is a pillar in the community. He is a man of biblical understanding and religious knowledge and intellectual depth and power. And he's civic-minded this is a good dude he has it all together but it's to this man that Jesus looks and says even you yes you Nicodemus you have to be born again let's connect the dots to be born again is not to say to Nicodemus hey Nicodemus you need some moral and spiritual nips and tucks because guess what Nicodemus had already had the spiritual nips and tucks he was better than you and I To be born again is not a matter of doing kind of a few things. It is a matter, he's saying to to Nicodemus, of an entirely new spiritual DNA. You and your old heart and all of your efforts is still rotten to the core. And so you need a new heart, a new spirit. You need all that rottenness washed away, and you need a new DNA to produce a new life. Let me give you an illustration of this. I was a great basketball player. When I was a young kid, I outshot everybody. My team won the rec league every year. We would go undefeated. At 13 years old, I joined an AAU team. Now, if you don't know anything about AAU teams, they're like essentially a travel ball team, and my AAU team was one of the best in the state. And, but I had a really rough experience going to AAU because what you realize when you move up to that kind of level is everyone is bigger, faster, and stronger. And now the game was played at a new level. Literally. At 13 years old, I went from playing in rec league where the game was played below the rim, and now it was being played at the rim or above the rim at 13 years old. And inside, I had an internal groan that went something like this. Oh no. Because it didn't matter, I could do lunges until the cows came home. There was something about my genetics And my DNA from Dan Henley, it did not matter. I was never playing above the rim. In other words, what did I need? If I was gonna make it, I needed a new DNA, and that wasn't coming anytime soon. And that is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. This is the unimaginable, Nicodemus, that despite all that you've done, all the spiritual lunges you've, you've done, all the working in the gym you've done, it's not gonna make you quick enough, fast enough, strong enough, Nicodemus, so that you could have eternal life. And here's the connection for us. If Nicodemus has to be born again, you and I have to be born again. If this guy needs DNA, new DNA and new genetics, then you and I need, need new DNA and spiritual genetics. No matter how good and decent you have been, you may have been born into the church Your mother had you here in the sanctuary. You spent every single day here. You have read the Bible. You have been catechized. And yet if there has not been a work of the Holy Spirit to transform your spiritual genetics, you need this work in your life. So this is quite distressing for Nicodemus because he thought he was in. Well, second, we see the distressing winds of new birth. The distressing winds of new birth. So Nicodemus sees that there's a deep need. And Jesus says that unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't experience eternal life. And so the natural question is by Nicodemus is, okay, what do we gotta do to be born again? And if you're Nicodemus here, you're probably going, okay, I thought I was in. This is distressing to find out that I haven't been into the kingdom of God this whole time, but I need some new DNA. That's fine. Where do I go find that? And what do I do to get it? We can figure this out. What can I do to be born again? And here's some more distressing news for poor Nicodemus. Jesus says this in response, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now this is fun Bible language for flesh is shorthand for not just your body, but all of your fleshly desires, all the desires of your original spiritual DNA, all those things that were evil and wicked that you want, all those things that are self-centered and about you, That's what the flesh is. And so what Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus is, wait, Nicodemus, just trying harder to be born again is not gonna get the job done. Nicodemus, just more of you using your flesh to do better in hopes of finding this, this new birth and this new life will not cut it for you. It's like saying, Nicodemus, you can try with all of your willpower and all the efforts of the flesh, but you know what's gonna happen? It's gonna produce the same exact results it's always produced in your life. Because more of you, Nicodemus, is guess what? More of Nicodemus, not more of the spirits. It's like this. We're gonna humanize a peach tree. Imagine you're a peach tree. Well, of course you are. You're a good Georgia people. You love peaches. And you hear that the farmer, though, hates peaches and that he's gonna cut down all the peach trees because he hates them. And you hear that the farmer only wants apple trees. And as a peach tree, you don't wanna get cut down and you wanna continue living. And so you decide that I'm gonna work really, really, really hard as a peach tree to produce apples. And so you do all the things that peach trees know to do. Your roots go down further in the ground and gather up more water and you suck in all the sun and all the rain that you possibly can do. And you produce this incredible crop of what? peaches yeah because your dna only produces peaches and so it is with us if your dna is corrupted spiritually that all of your longings and desires are self-centered and selfish that ultimately you trying harder is only going to produce more of what you have always produced which is works of the flesh and at this, it says that Nicodemus is Nicodemus is marveling. He is bewildered and he's reeling at what Jesus has said. And how do we know that he's marveling? Because in verse 7, Jesus looks at him and says, Hey, don't you don't don't marvel. Verse 7 and 8, Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you you must be born again. And then Jesus says this. It gets even more distressing before Nick Nico. That's how he goes in my notes, so I don't have to write out Nicodemus. He's Nico. So the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, so we can't fix ourselves. We can't make ourselves born again. So Jesus, how in the world does it happen that I get a new spirit, a new heart? And Jesus' answer is this. The Spirit of God must blow on you. And Nicodemus says, okay, how do I make the spirit of God blow on me to give me new life and new birth? And this is the most distressing news of all. You can't. The spirit is like the wind, Jesus says. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. You cannot produce it and you cannot control it. He says, yes, you can feel the effects of it. You can feel the cool breeze on your face and you can see it blowing the trees but you can't make it happen. You can't make the wind blow your way. And so what is Jesus saying? Here's the devastating and distressing news of how new birth happens. That new birth happens by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone, choosing upon whom he will blow such that he cleanses and gives you that new birth. How are you born again? only by his work, by the grace of God and his spirit. You don't do anything. You won't do anything. You are unable to do anything. It is all done by God. And this is the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion says, do this and you get life in God. Christianity says, no, God comes and does everything to give you life. And then in that new life, you respond to him. The whole image here is of new birth of second birth. Well, let me tell you, I'm not a great at biology and science. I generally just didn't like it, but I'm gonna give you a little biology lesson. This is my level right here, my biology level that I'm about to give you. I'm gonna lay down some earth-shattering biological news on you. You ready? You had nothing to do with your first conception. You didn't cause it. You You didn't make those two crazy kids get together. It is not back to the future, people. You didn't cause it. And aren't you glad you weren't there for it? And so it is with spiritual birth. You didn't make it happen. We have no power to create new life in us. Why? Because dead people can't make themselves undead. Dead people spiritually cannot give themselves new life, and therefore, something happened, had to happen to us by the work of God and by His Spirit to give you new life. And this is distressing. It's distressing to us Americans who, who have this belief who say, But I chose Jesus, and I walked an aisle, and I was born again because I chose Him. Wrong way. No, he made you born again and then because he gave you new life you looked up and you saw him. And this pushes against our arrogance and our self-righteousness and that one little part of us that goes I still want some part of my salvation to be something that I did. I ticked off the boxes and I earned this. But that's not the story the message of the gospel. Now that is distressing for us because it humbles us and it quiets us. And we realize it has nothing to do with what we have done and that it ought to humble you, right? I love the, the illustration that we were just given about a family who is in utter distress, that we don't look upon those who are in distress and those who are living in a way that is completely contrary to the Lord and with judgment, why? because you didn't save yourself, he did. But I also want you to know this about yourself. And if you'll wrestle with this very distressing news that you didn't save yourself and had no part in giving you new life, then you can recognize this about yourself. You're a miracle of God. That's who you are. Real quickly, a miracle is a suspension or an overriding of the natural order of things. Our natural order is the state of living by our flesh in sin. To do everything by our flesh. To want to bolster ourselves up and walk and get up the rungs ourselves. That's the natural order of things. For me to earn my way in. But the new birth comes by the Spirit invading and transforming and bringing about a new life in such a way that it actually puts to death that old man and quiets him. And he says, It has been nothing of me. It is all of you. It's a miracle. If you believe, you're a miracle. St. Thomas Aquinas, who's a church historian and theologian and philosopher said this, the recreation of one human heart is a greater miracle than the original creation of the entire universe out of nothing. The next time you look at at scenes, those incredible scenes of the Milky Way, know that your redeemed and regenerated heart is more of a miracle than those things are. So Jesus is saying, and I am saying, we are completely dependent on something outside of our control. For the spirit of the wind of the spirit to blow our way and to recreate us, you need God. Period. Period. And if you know that, that's a miracle. But there's some good news. We come back full circle to where we began. So you ask, well, how do I get eternal life? We've looked behind the curtain, and wasn't it distressing? But Jesus, in his graciousness to Nicodemus, now brings it back around. You see, the wind blows and we can't control it, but Jesus did say we can see the effects of it. We can see the effects. We can feel the wind on our face and we can feel it tossing our hair and we can look at the trees and see them swaying back and forth. And so what are the effects of the blowing of the spirit of God in a person's life? How do you know the spirit has blown into someone's spirit to make them born again? How do you know? Well, this is your last heading for the morning. It's the distressing sight of new birth. The distressing sight of new birth. So Jesus what he does in verses like 10, 11, 12, he really quickly, he chastises Nicodemus that he has spent his entire life studying the Bible and he still doesn't know that God is the one who must save. Further pointing out that Nicodemus, even with all this study, you can't study your way into heaven, people. You can't outstudy Nicodemus. But then Jesus in his mercy, he gives Nicodemus an illustration that Nicodemus would at least go, okay, at least I know this story. And Jesus gives Nicodemus what is to us a completely bizarre scene. He tells of a story from Numbers chapter 21. It's in one little phrase, Jesus says. And just as the serpent was raised up by Moses in the wilderness, and then he moves on to make his point. And what Jesus is referring to here is the scene from Numbers chapter 21 where Israel has been wandering around. They've, left, they've come out of enslavement from Egypt. They've been wandering around in the desert, in the wilderness for a while. And, and, and they get, they, well, they, they get grouchy. And they begin to complain to God and they're grumbling and murmuring against God and they're discontent and ungrateful. And so God brought um, judgment into their midst in the form of a plague of poisonous snakes were sent to bring the, death, uh, the judgment of death upon them. Now, by the way, I'm not sure there's a better example of the sins of the flesh than whining and complaining. We came out whining and complaining. So anyways, grumbling happens. God sends snakes as a curse and a punishment. And so the people of God are dying and they're very distressed by the dying and the snakes and they want God to heal them, to remove the poison from them. And so God tells Moses to do this very bizarre thing. He says, take a bronze snake, a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole high enough so that everyone can see it. So the people who are dying on the ground of poison, all they have to do is look up and see. And if someone had been bitten, they could look up the bronze serpent and they would be healed. And all who looked on this object of death, even though they had been fatally bitten, they would continue to live. They would essentially get a second life, a new life, you might say. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of this story since you were nine years old in Sunday school, because that's about the time we stopped teaching this story. But the story what Jesus is doing is he's pointing back to the people of Israel and they're experiencing a taste of the judgment because of their fleshly living. Because they're experiencing the taste of the curse. That's why it's a snake. Who gets cursed in Genesis chapter three? The object of the curse that God puts on mankind and on the serpent himself is a snake. And so they're experiencing a taste of the curse of sin and of the the fleshliness of their natural selves and what they have earned and what they have deserved. And so what their sin has earned is a curse from God. And so imagine the scene. Someone gets bit, they're in the throes of pain and sorrow because they're experiencing the consequences of the curse. They are panicked. They've been bitten by a snake. That's fairly traumatic. Let's say distressing, to use our word today. They've been bitten by the cursed. They are essentially dead men and women. This is desperation. This is the fullness of distress. And the curse is poisoning their body such that they cannot do anything to get help, to get anywhere to save themselves. They can do nothing. They are doomed. That is a distressing realization, Right? You're laying on a desert floor, surrounded by poisonous snakes, you've already been bitten by one, you know you're dying, you're foaming at the mouth and you can do nothing. This is a high point of distress. And then Moses says, I've put up a snake, just look at it and you'll be healed. He's saying, just look at the curse, your curse, it's up there on the the tree, on the pole. And don't you think that would be a distressing thing to look at? Well, we come back to Nicodemus and Jesus. So we've left Numbers 21, but we need to keep Numbers 21 in mind. And Jesus goes in verse 14, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man, Jesus, must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I'm the serpent who's gonna be put on the pole. What this is saying is Jesus is saying a curse had to be put on the tree. The curse had to be put to death. The curse, the wrath for your sin, the poison of our sin had to be done away with. And what Jesus is saying is this, I have taken the curse upon myself. What you have been inflicted with and by, by evil, by the curse, I will take it. I will take it to the cross. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter three, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? By becoming a curse for us. He became a curse for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He took your curse and he took mine and you must see it. And by the way, you must be distressed by it. You look at your life and you see the mess that you create, that your flesh and that your longing and your selfishness and your self-centeredness creates. And it, what does it create? It creates nothing but chaos and cursing in your life. But then what you do is you look at the cross and it is hard to look at the cross because here's the distressing nature of the cross. You look at the cross and the son of man dying on it for your sins and you go, my sins put him there. That's distressing. That's distressing. My sins were not just a bad idea. My sins were not just a little mistake. My sins were not a momentary fling. No, my sins put the Son of God on a cross. That's what my sins deserve. And so you're distressed by them. As distressed as you would be surrounded by poisonous snakes, that's the image. If I was surrounded by poisonous snakes, I well, it would sound shrill. And that's the image that we're given. That level of distress. And just like Moses said, though, but all you have to do to live, so that's repentance, that distress, to see my sin and what it costs, and here's faith, here's belief. We've come full circle. Repent and believe. Look up. And that's it. The wind has blown. How do you know the wind of the Spirit has blown new life into you? One, you're quite distressed over your sin. And two, like dying men in a wilderness who looked at their sin on a cross, that's all you do in faith. In other words, in the language that Jesus is using is you look to Jesus on the cross and you say, I have no hope. I have been bitten by the curse. I look to him and he takes the poison and he takes the curse for me so that I may have life again. Look to the cross. A.W. Tozer said it this way, faith faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. And he took it from this passage in Numbers 21. Jesus, isn't there more that we can do? No, there's nothing you can do. You've been bitten by a snake. Lay there and foam at the mouth and look up. There's nothing more you can do. Jesus, shouldn't I rub my terrible spots or try to clean myself up? Nope, just look at him in faith. Jesus, there has to be something I must do. Nope, look up. That's it. And so what are the effects of the spirit blowing upon you of new birth? How do you know what's the wind blowing on your face of the spirit's new birth in you is that you're distressed over your sin? and you look to the one who died for it and trust upon him. So how do, how do you know that happens to a man? They look up and they see him. So let me ask you this. We've come full circle. Back to the Philippian jailer of sorts. How do you have eternal life? You repent in belief. But how did you repent in belief? Entirely. Because of the precious grace of Jesus, who made you alive. That's good news. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would calm and quiet our yeah buts and our whatabouts, the things in us that would want to put up an intellectual argument and to cling to something we did or our parents did or our church did. Heavenly Father, if we must move through a season of distress at the idea that people are only saved because the wind blows by your choosing into their lives, I pray that we would go through that season of distress. But in your mercy, would we find ourselves at the end of it on our knees in worship, knowing that we have done nothing and you have done everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.